the splendor. And the Bible reads, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hevite, and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression which w- with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. This is God's word. You may be seated. I'll invite you to, uh, to grab that insert in the bulletin. Uh, you'll find not only the order of worship, but to the right side of it, uh, a place where you can take some notes as we look uh, again at the book of Exodus. Uh, down at the bottom, uh, we have our, our small groups meeting tonight, and uh, there are some questions down at the bottom that will form. There's actually two questions rather than three this week, and those two questions will form the discussion time in your small groups tonight. So uh, uh, take that out. There might be um, some notes or some questions you may want to write down or uh, something that you want to study maybe a little bit later. And I invite you to, to get that pen and paper and your Bible open to Exodus 3 and 4, and that's pray and ask God to bless us. Yahweh, our Father, our Creator, our Savior, our Shepherd, the Overseer of our soul, we come to you in this moment. And we ask, Father, that you make your word sacred and holy in our heart. That these these words that Rodney have read to us, that they will be words that we will reflect and meditate upon, contemplate, chew on and gnaw on in such a way, Father, that, that we become more mindful of your presence and more mindful especially of your personality as you intersect with us in this world that we live in, this world that you have created but has become fallen in a world in which you seek to be glorified by your people. And that begins, Father, with how we think about you and the way that you have revealed yourself to Moses. And so what we're asking in this moment, Father, is that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear in such a way that these profound learnings take place and reside within us. And this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We are studying the, uh, the book of Exodus right in the middle of it. It's kind of our church-wide study. There is a, a study that happens in our Bible classes with our teenagers all the way up to the oldest of our senior adults. And it's also a series that we're looking at the same day, not the same passages necessarily, but on the same day in the, uh, the preaching and the study in our Sunday morning worship times. And um, there's, there's a lot of reasons for studying Exodus, I think. Uh, one is it's just a marvelous story. Those first 23, 24 chapters of Exodus are some of the most exciting things that you will ever read, not just in the Bible, but in all of literature. It is is the kind of literature that Hollywood is always looking to make a movie out of, and we have seen those. Some of them are great, some of them not so great. 
But then there's a second reason that we study the book of Exodus, and it's this reason. We need Exodus to help us to understand the Bible. The reason we study Exodus is that Exodus helps us to understand everything from Genesis all the way to the maps when it comes to our Bible. And reading and knowing and memorizing passages and becoming familiar with with the personalities and the events and the things that take place like the plagues and Mount Sinai. These help us to understand what's happening in the New Testament in much more profound ways than if we did not have Exodus at all. I mean, Moses is is the is the, the prophet that Jesus is the ultimate prophet. He is the ultimate Moses. He is the one that brings the ultimate exodus. And you kind of get the picture. That's one of the reasons why we read Exodus. But the, the main reason that we study and read and contemplate the book of Exodus is because the book of Exodus, like all of the books of the Bible, are about God. It's about God. It's about His nature. It's about His personality. It's about His character. And it is about his interaction, not only with human history, but his intersection in the lives of human people. In this particular case, Moses. And what we do is we begin to, to learn and we begin to, to, to build this, this, this body of information that's given to us in Exodus that helps us to actually understand how we live in the world today with the same God who has brought us into relationship with him as his family, as his holy nation, because of the greatest and ultimate exodus that was brought about by the Christ. Which then brings us to the theme today. And one of the things that we, we learn about God, and that has to do with promises. Now, raise your hand if you have ever in your life made a promise. If you're married, you made a promise. If you're in the military, there's a military town, you made a promise. Everybody, at one point or another, regardless of age, has made a promise. Raise your hand now if you have ever broken a promise. Now, we'll see how many of you are really honest. It should be all of us, right? Uh, some years ago, and you know this, Ellen and I were church planning missionaries with our kiddos, a couple of other families in Brasilia, Brazil. For, you know, for a number of years, that's where we lived. In 1993, we were coming back on furlough, a furlough that would be just a couple of months long, it was a time to see our parents, see our sponsoring church, and that furlough was going to be long enough that it would fall past Christmas into the new year, into January 1994. And so as we were getting ready and packing, and you know, it's kind of a big deal to be gone for uh, two or three months, we were talking about what we wanted to do with our kids on that furlough. Well, Jordan knew exactly what he wanted to do. When we got to San Diego, where our sponsoring church was located, he wanted to go to Disneyland. And so we said, yeah, we'll go to Disneyland. He had never been. We had taken Jessica when she was a little kid, but we had never had a chance to take Jordan because he had just been too small. And so we're talking about it. And he goes, Dad, can we really go to Disneyland? I said, yeah, we're going to go to Disneyland. He said, I want to see the mouse. I said, we'll go see the mouse. He said, you promise? And I said, I promise. Roll around January. We land in San Diego, California. We're there. The day comes that we're going to take the kids to Disneyland. It's January 17th, 1994. Early in the morning, we leave San Diego. We're headed north to Anaheim, just about 100, a little over 100 miles from where we were staying. And we get about halfway up the coast, and all of a sudden there are roadblocks. Can't go any further north. We turn on the radio, and we hear the news that the largest, most powerful earthquake had just hit Los Angeles, 6.7 on the Richter scale. So we turned around, didn't go to Disneyland. I mean, how could I foresee a large earthquake, right? And we go to SeaWorld. 
And SeaWorld was great, but I don't think it's ever been that satisfying event and experience uh, for Jordan as it was for us. Now, when you think about a promise, it takes three things, right, to make a promise, not just to make it, but to keep it. The first is you need a knowledge that transcends the unforeseen. You need, if you're really going to be perfect when it comes to making and keeping promises, you need that kind of knowledge that allows you to see that, well, I'm not going to promise on this day because an earthquake is going to hit California and that's going to sabotage our trip to Disneyland. Number two, you need a power that outstrips any hindrance. You know, there are obstacles that come a lot of times to fulfilling the promises that we have made to somebody. And we sometimes are powerless before those obstacles or those hindrances in order to fulfill that promise. And then the third thing is you need a will that eclipses any weakness. Now the Bible is very straightforward in its, its addressing how you're to conduct yourself when it comes to making a promise or making a vow. A lot of times we'll make a promise, but we don't want to keep it because it will become something painful to us or hurtful to us. But you read places like Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and the Bible says, even to your hurt, even if it causes you pain, you're to keep that vow. You're to keep, you're to keep that promise. Now, since humans do not possess any of these perfectly, we are, and I think everybody knows this, we are imperfect promise makers and promise keepers. But that's us. What about God? Because one of the things that we know about God is that God is a promise maker. And we'll talk about this a little bit later in the sermon, but I, I want you to know that your life as a disciple of Jesus is not only chock full of promises that you need to base your life on, but as a disciple of Jesus, living in the context living in the vast sea of those promises, one of the big pieces of your spiritual maturity is learning how to live faithfully with those promises. Now, I want us to take like a half step backwards here just for a moment to talk about something technical that we're going to see not only in the entire Bible but, but in uh, uh, Exodus chapters 3 and 4. Technically, there is no Hebrew word that corresponds to our word promise in English. Uh, perhaps the closest is the Hebrew word shevu'ah, uh, which means uh, to, to make a, uh, an oath or to swear an oath. But whenever in your English translations you see the word promise in the Old Testament, it is connected to the Hebrew verbs amar or dever, which are about speaking or about saying something. I'll give you an example of that. A literal translation of Genesis 18, and this is where God is talking about uh, the blessing of a son that's going to trigger Abraham being, and this is Abraham's greatest desire, right? To have a son that will lead him to becoming a, a great nation. In the NIV, or excuse me, the New American Standard, it says, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has, what? Spoken about him. The NIV, which is not a literal translation, but it's one that is more contemporary, trying a lot of interpretation in there and trying to help us to understand what is being said in this ancient Hebrew language, says it this way, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Now, in the Hebrew language, that's a great translation. The word promise is not a mistranslation. Promise is a good word. That's what is being talked about. So the question is, what does it mean for us? As disciples of Jesus of Nazareth, 
to have a God who is a promise maker. There are three things I think we learn from this text. Number one, all promises have a tension. All promises have a tension, a tension of time and of fulfillment. Number two, promises a lot of the time can seem very, very fragile and they can seem endangered. That from the standpoint of a one who is the recipient of a promise, that they may not come true. That is a danger and a temptation. And then three, the key to the promise or to all of the promises is the promiser. Which now brings us back to Exodus In Exodus chapter 3 and 4, as you already know, this part of Exodus is about living life with the yet unfulfilled promise of God. At the end of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, we read these last words of Joseph. He says to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of the land to the land he promised Going all the way back to, this is Genesis 50, that's going all the way back to Genesis 12 when God calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees to go to the promised land. He will take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. 400 years later, God, he sees, he hears, he becomes aware of all of the oppression He becomes aware of the injustice, the slavery, the cruelty, the brutality of life, and he comes down to fulfill the promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And this is such an important part of this particular part of Exodus that it's recorded. God says it twice in chapter 3 and once in chapter 6. He says, I see what's going on in the world that I have created. I see what is going on and I'm going to come down in order to bring you up and to lead you to a land that is flowing with milk and honey. 400 years later. Which brings us to that first point that promises are not always fulfilled quickly. They're not. In fact, this is one of the the tensions that's just inherent and integral in a promise. The word itself, when I say, I promise to do something, the word implies that there might be some waiting involved. I promise that when I come home from work, I'm going to stop by, I'm going to pick up some almond milk and some butter, and I'm going to pick up some bread. But it means, not only am I going to do that, but you're going to have to wait until that promise is fulfilled sometime later in the day. Promises require and this is hard, that we wait. The implied message is uh, sometime down the road, yes, but not now. Jeremiah gets it as tough as it is during all of that bad stuff that's happening in Jerusalem during his time. He writes in Lamentation chapter 3, and you know if it's in a book called Lamentations, it's not a positive time. In chapter 3, he says, in the midst of all this pain, He says, the Lord is good to those who hope in Him. To the one who seeks Him, it is good to what? Wait. It's good to what, church? Wait. And not just wait, but wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter is writing to a church that is being rocked and, and, and faces a lot of painful stuff. And because that's true, they're evaluating what their present life is like 
in terms of what their future life in the presence of God, in the presence of Jesus himself, what that will be like. And so they're really struggling with the idea of the second coming and why they have to go through this brutal being rocked by Rome period of time. And Peter knows this. And Peter has already referred to himself as a shepherd, and so he has sort of those pastoral concerns in his heart. And he writes to them these really famous words. He said, do not forget one thing. When he says do not forget one thing, it doesn't really mean that you're supposed to forget everything else. But it's really emphasizing, don't ever, as a disciple of Jesus, forget this. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. There is a part of your maturation as a disciple of Jesus that involves learning how to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. For him to act, for him to, to move, for, for him at times to fulfill a promise. And the reason that Peter writes those words is because humans are not very good at being patient. I mean, think about the world that our children are being born into. When I was born into the world at a young 56 years of age today, I can remember party lines. Now, if you're under the age of probably 40, you don't know what a party line is, but a party line, back in the old days when you had a telephone, you were out in a rural area, sometimes you shared a telephone number with a lot of people. And you'd go to call somebody and you can hear the conversation of somebody else who was party to that line. And you would have to wait and wait and wait in order in, in order to be able to use that phone and to make a phone call. And sometimes you had to get on the line and say, will you please get off the phone so that I can use it? Our, our children are, are, are born into a world in which we have cell phones. You don't even have to wait to find a pay phone. You don't have to wait until you get home. You can make the phone where you are, or the phone call where you are. Uh, my wife has, has a car that uh, is, is absolutely amazing. I don't even have to wait to get home. I don't even have to wait until I'm at a stop sign. I can make a phone call while I'm driving. I push a button. And Miss Mazda, who's the sweetest lady who ever lived, comes on in our car and says, Hello, say or push who you would like to call. And so I say, I call Ellen Absher or Jordan Absher or Jessica Absher or somebody, and she makes a phone call for me. And I'm able to talk on the phone, push another button, and we're done. I even, when I'm lost, don't have to wait to find out where I am. Now, Mrs. GPS lady on my phone's not nearly as nice as Miss Mazda. Her words to me always start with, make a U-turn now. <laughs> but we don't have to wait. Instant gratification is part of the world that we live in. And that's why we become frustrated and anxious. It's fast food but if we don't get it in five minutes, we're mad. It's sort of fast food. We want to hurry things along, and that's why the fact that we want to hurry things along, that's why the promises are often very much endangered. No one likes to wait. We're not good at it at all. That's why Tom Petty wrote that song, Waiting is the Hardest Part. Humans are super adept at complicating the promises and the plans of God. And you know how we do that? We get tired of waiting, so we're going to do it ourselves. And that is really not just a modern problem. It's an ancient problem as well. But let me say it again. 
trust and patience and obedience are the faith requirements for humans when it comes to the promises of God. Quick history. God, in Genesis chapter 12, he goes to, God, uh, goes to Abraham and Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham's life has come to a dead end. And he summons Abraham to the promised land with the benefit of a lot of blessings. He said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you a great nation. Curse those that curse you. Bless those that bless you. And the whole earth is going to be blessed through you. And Abraham finally makes his way into the promised land. He's barely in the land when a famine takes place. Promised land does not look all that promising. And so unwisely, unwisely, he goes to Egypt. And on the way, he realizes that this is a bad mistake. And the reason that it's a bad mistake is that he looks over on the passenger side of the car and he sees that Sarai is a beautiful, beautiful, gorgeous woman. And he's afraid that they're going, to, they're going to kill me in order to take you. So he concocts a plan that ends with him uh, being uh, able to say, and her as well, because it was half true, that she is my sister. But what happens is that now this husband and wife, Abraham and Sarah, that are supposed to become this great nation, have a son, all that kind of stuff, all of a sudden they have endangered the promise because they have been separated and she is now in the home of another man. And God has to intervene. And later, Abraham and Sarah, they're getting tired of waiting and waiting and waiting. I mean, they've told God over and over again, we need a son, we need a son. It's great that you're going to curse those that curse us and bless those that bless us, but what about the kid? What about the son? It's a great thing on their heart. But they take matters into their own hands, and she puts another woman by the name of Hagar into the arms of her husband. And Ishmael is born, which creates all kinds of issues. You know, sometimes in life, the, the can of worms opens from the inside. And that's what happens here. And God has to intervene again. And now Sarah is so tired of waiting and waiting and waiting that she finds belief in her, at her age, having uh, a child at his age well, when she hears God say that to Abraham, she laughs at the impossibility of a promise coming true. Jacob is no different, a grandson. Jacob is a danger to the promises of God because he is the king in the ancient world of the wheelers and the dealers. And because of his wheeling and dealing with a little help from his mother, at one point, he is on the lamb, and his life is in danger because of how he's trying to do everything by his own wit. Now, how in the world is the promise of God and the blessing and all of that supposed to go through a guy that is in danger of being killed by his twin brother? And not only that, he has to take off to Padam Aram, which is way far north of the promised land. And how is the promise of God going to go forward through him if he is living outside of the promised land until God intervenes and brings him back. And now the people have a foreign power with its thumb on their lives. They are enslaved and oppressed within an inch of their life. 
they feel like each day is a beat down into the dust. And there's no hope, no hope to get out of it. What about that promised land? What are they going to do? Well, they cry out to the one who can hear them. Which brings us the key to the promises of God, the promiser. God uses a, a phrase to describe himself in chapter 3 and chapter 4 in this initial conversation with Moses that we often run right over. We run right over it. Here's the phrase. Chapter 3, verse 6. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. You drop down to verse 15. Say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. Verse 16. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me. Go to the beginning of chapter 4, verse 5. This said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of, say it with me, Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When God, when God shows up and appears as Yahweh, as the Evway, I share Evway, I am who I am. I am what I am. He, he's, he, he calls attention as an example of faith, not to his father, who could have been a great example of faith. We don't know that much about him. Later on, we find out that his name is Amram. More to the point, he doesn't really mention his mother, who seems to be a, a, a really great woman of faith, or even the sister in the way that she is going to preserve Moses' life in the middle of what's happening in, in, uh, in, their, in the land of Goshen at that time. When God calls Moses, he, he doesn't call any attention to his, his immediate people. He calls attention to these three, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They're patriarchs. And God does it for a reason. Moses has been living in the land of Midian for how long? Forty years. Forty years. Four decades of living with the sheep. And he says, remember, I'm the God of Abraham. Abraham, too, had to leave his comfort zone in order to find the, the promise. Abraham, like you, Moses, being called out of the comfort of where you've lived for a long time in order to go to a place, and in um, Abraham's case, it was to a land that was dangerous because the trip was long. In Moses' case, it was going to be out of his comfort zone because the place he was going back to, the last time he was there, they tried to kill him. Which brings us to Isaac. Which brings us to Isaac. Isaac is the one that you'll remember in Genesis chapter 22. Faced certain death. Faced certain death. And yet God provided for him. 
I'm the God of Abraham, he says. I'm calling you out of your comfort zone. I'm the God of Isaac, because you are going back to a dangerous place. But I am also Yahweh Yireh. I am the God who supplies, the God who provides. And then he says, I'm the God of Jacob. And if you know anything about Jacob, Jacob is, is the one that discovered after all of those years that living by his wits, that, that living by his, uh, what he could conjure up between his two hands and what he could think up between his two ears, that living by those kinds of wits without reference to God is sheer folly. And so Moses is being called by the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He is going with the one who makes the promises come true. There is this, this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where, where Paul is referencing the promises that we, we receive when we become disciples, when we become children of God, sons of God, daughters of God. And, you know, every once in a while, life gets to that place where, where, you, where you wonder, you know, is it real? Is it real? There's that place in life that you get to where you wonder, is heaven really real? You're walking down the street one night, you wonder, you know, is God really with me? Do I have His Spirit inside of me? Do I do I have the assurance of my own salvation? And Corinth, like San Antonio, are full of people that can have those kinds of thoughts. And so what Paul wrote to them is the same thing that he writes to us. He says, it doesn't matter how many promises God has made. They are yes in Christ. So you're walking down that road at night. And you're wondering, is, is, is heaven real? Paul says in Christ, the answer is, you're walking down the street and you're feeling a little bit guilty. You have a chance to reflect on your life, feeling guilty. And you wonder if your sins have been forgiven. Paul would say, because of that doubt and the angst that that creates, anxiety that creates, Paul would say, look at Christ, because in him the answer is, say it, yes. And, and whether or not you're, you're forgiven or is it more than that? He's forgiven me. But is he just saying, okay, I forgive you, you can go your way and I can go my way? Is he with me? Is God with me does he see my life does he know the joys that i experience does he know the level of brokenheartedness that that i feel is he there in solidarity with me in the high moments and the low moments and the answer paul says in christ is and say with gusto is what it's yes it's yes when it comes to the promises of god my friends 
It is not about our ability to live out even our part of it. The promises are true because the one who made them is truer than we can imagine. He is so true that our eyes will water at his faithfulness even when we don't deserve it. And that's the beauty of grace when it comes into our lives. That is not just salvation, but he's saving us from ourselves. That He is helping us through the power of His Spirit, the power of His Word, the power of fellowship and community, and yes, the power of small groups to be able to live in such a way that some of those old pains that were authored by us are things in the past. And the answer in Christ is always yes. We're going to sing a song right now, and it's to praise God. It's to praise God. God for the greatness of his promises and the gratefulness and, and gratefulness for his faithfulness. And while we're singing that, maybe you've never made yourself a child of God, a son or a daughter of God through the life of Christ that was given, that, that death suffered in our behalf so that we could get his righteousness and get his life. And if that has never happened to you and you're wondering, could it happen for me today? Yes, is the answer. You can repent. You can repent. And you can say, yes, Jesus is the Lord of my life. And you can say yes to baptism, knowing that your sins are being washed away and that you're receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you can say yes, because who said yes first? The Christ. He said yes first. If that describes you this morning, come talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God together. Tis so sweet.